beautiful. So, Andrew, how am I supposed to preach now, buddy? Thanks a lot. Love you too, man. Love you too. Sing hallelujah. Praise be to God. The light of the world has come. And that's what we're celebrating this season. That's what we together as a church want to be sure to highlight in every way that we can. And if you're visiting with us today, we want you to know that we're really glad you're here. Um, we're glad you're with us at this time. You're, you're amongst a group of people who are in desperate need. Um, no, no one here has their act together. Uh, we are all seeking Jesus together because we need him. And thankfully, he has come. And our hope rests in him and in him alone. There are several things we're doing together as a church family that we've already mentioned today. Um, the, the Christmas joy uh, gift opportunity that we have, please take advantage of that. You can be part of giving a gift to the child of an inmate, someone who's in jail right now, a mom or a dad who wants to give a gift to their child and they can't. You can be a part of that. So uh, be sure to pick up a tag on a tree in the foyer area. And then also realize when we deliver gifts, you, are, you get to be a part of that too. It's one of the best things ever to be able to go out and actually bring these gifts to these families in the name of Jesus and to see what God does through that. Something else that we're about doing right now, and, and uh, even Brandon mentioned it in prayer, we have our Access for All uh, campaign going on right now. If you're not familiar with that, uh, we are a church family that wants to open our doors wider. We want to bring more people in. And we realize something that for people who have mobility challenges, our campus, it kind of presents a lot of obstacles. And so we want to remove those. And so a part of what we're doing is we're taking that building through that window that you see right there. We call it the nursery wing. We're expanding it. Uh, we're going to put in a, a, a larger area that people can come in through, an elevator so they can go up and down stairs easily, uh, bathrooms that are updated and welcoming, and also, as was mentioned, a nursery that's expanded. Why? Because there's a bunch of kids around here. Isn't that a great problem to have? I love that. So we need more room for more kids, okay? And so we're going to be expanding the nursery as well. And uh, you can be a part of that by, by giving to it. Uh, thank, thank you to all of you who have been giving toward that effort. Uh, but there's another update as well that I'd like to give, and that is that we've got people being placed in different areas of leadership for this project. Uh, folks in, in our community who are stepping up and, and, and taking part in, in leading different components. Some, some are going to be looking at the contracts that have to be signed because they have expertise in that area. Others are going to be looking over some of the construction elements uh, in the team because they've got expertise in that area. Um, others are just really good at connecting people and opportunities. And so I, I'd, I'd like to draw attention to someone. He's going to be really mad at me right now, but that's okay. Uh, and that would be Don Meyer, who's sitting right there. Hi, Don. I love you, buddy. It's like, okay, I'll get you later. But Don is overseeing the component of the project for volunteers. In other words, Don, it's because why? Because, well, Don loves to serve. If there's a need happening somewhere, Don's the first guy to show up. But he also knows others who like to serve, and he's aware of the needs for the project as well. So if you want to be a part of serving in some way, and you're wondering how you can be involved, talk to Don. Don, just raise your hand. I won't make you stand up, but just put your hand up. There he is right there, Don Meyer. So we praise God for you, brother, that you're taking on that part of the project. And we just really want to invite you to talk to him and find out other ways you can be involved. Uh, because we realize something. This is God's church. It's not ours. We want to be good stewards with what, he's, with what he's given us. And he's given us financial means to give, but he's also given us talents and he's given us experience and he's given us other things. And, and so together as a church family, we want to make sure that we're glorifying God with his project to make his church what he wants it to be. And so we, we thank him for that as well. I, when I use the word promises, how does that make you feel? Promises. For some of us, it gives us a sense of that's, those are beautiful things. For others of us, it's a painful word because we've been through seasons and times where people have broken promises with us. And, uh, and I think we also see this theme very much in popular music. So uh, I love that we have a diverse crowd here. I'm going to bring up some popular songs to talk about promises. Some of you will get some of them. Others of you will not, but you will get one of them. Here we go. You ready? I'm going to go in chronological order. I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. <laughs> All right, yeah, some of you get that. All right, here's another one, another era. That was the 70s. Here's, here's something from the 80s. You made me promises, promises, knowing I'd believe. Promises, promises, you knew you'd never keep. See, less of you, that's too bad. That's a good 80s song. You're missing out. All right, fine. Here's another one. This is from the 90s. 
I've never made promises lightly and there have been some that I've broken, but I swear in the days still left, we'll walk in fields of gold. That sting, huh? I know, I know, man, sting's got away. It's kind of got away. Like, you're like, that's good. More recent. And do you tell her she's the most beautiful girl you've ever seen and promise three words you know you'll never mean? Remember when I believed it, that you meant it when you said it first to me? Yeah, that's a very bitter young lady, but whatever. She's a very modern artist, if you know her. I got some of, some of the young people are going, oh, I know that song. Yeah. Here's the thing. All of us have encountered or experienced broken promises, haven't we? In some way. Certainly the epidemic of divorce that we've seen ravaging our culture and families through many decades is a, is a prime example of that very thing. And, and, and promises that are broken are reminders to us, really, that we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And it reminds us that, that, that people, at times, can not be trustworthy. And, and we, we can respond to that in some ways. And we, we, understandably, we, we end up becoming more guarded. We become more suspicious. We become more jaded, skeptical of things. And, and it's hard to trust and in some ways, that might be good. I think the Bible would even tell us that we're not, we're called to love everyone. We're not called to trust everybody. Trust is earned by actions over time. And that's, that's not, that's a wise way to live actually in some ways. But the problem comes, I think, when we take that kind of skepticism, that sort of like I've been let down before-ness, and we then apply it to our relationship with God. It can seep in. We think about God's promises sometimes and they kind of become distant. Like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that in Sunday school since I was a kid. That's great. But I've got a real problem right now. And that's a disconnect. God didn't give us his promises so that we can kind of divorce them from quote unquote, you know, real life. That's not how that works. And so we're in a four-week series for this Christmas entitled Joy to the World. And we kicked it off last week by looking at what the Bible says about joy through suffering. And today we're going to explore what the Bible says about joy in the promises of God. Because the bottom line is this, because God always keeps his promises, we have every reason to rejoice. Okay, I can close in prayer. We can go home. That was it. That's it. That's done. We're done. No, we'll, we'll explore this a bit. Because we need to step back for a moment and go, okay, well, all right, how, how can we know that God's going to keep his promises? That's a fair question. And, and really, it's because of, the Bible would tell us it's because of who God is and what he does. And so when we talk about God, who God is, we're talking about his person and character. We're talking about God's attributes. And you might think, well, what, what's an attribute? What's an attribute of, we, we'll use that phrase, the, attribute of, the attributes of God. I like what uh, A.W. Tozer said. He said, an attribute of God is whatever God has in any way revealed as being true of himself. That's, that's an attribute of God. And so when God tells us his promises, he, he's, he's also showing us by who he is and what he does that he's going to keep those promises. And so when we look at God's faithfulness and truthfulness and omnipotence and goodness, those things about God. We're talking about attributes. And so let's just briefly look at these. For some of you, this might be new. For some of you, it's going to be review. But let's think about this first of all. You know, the truthfulness of God. What is it? God is the true God whose knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. He's not going to lie to you. He never lies. He cannot lie. It's against his nature. I love it when Jesus says that, you know, he says, uh, I go and prepare a place for you. Were it not true, I wouldn't tell you this. You can trust him. If you're his child, if you've believed in Jesus, if you've received salvation from him, you can bank on that. The Bible tells us this in other places too. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord reveals himself to Moses and he says, the Lord the Lord passed by in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Uh, Jesus would also say this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's declaring the truth there. He is the embodiment of the truth. And so God's promises are always true 
Really, because God is always true. And we've got to remind ourselves of that. God's not just true, he's also faithful. What's God's faithfulness? It's the doctrine that God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he's promised. He will, he's faithful. He's completely reliable in his words. I love how the book of Numbers puts it. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? And the answer is yes. He can be relied on. He'll never, ever be unfaithful and go against what he said. Now, the problem people run into a lot of times is they'll claim promises of God that God never made. That does happen a lot. And then people turn around and blame God for that. So, you know, God, I obeyed you, and you said that my life would now be blessed because of that obedience. I don't feel very blessed, therefore you lied. That's not a promise God made in terms of blessed equaling everything going the way you want it to go. Blessed being he is with you in and through trials. Blessed being that he has a purpose for you in your trials. Blessed being that he's uh, taking you safely home and nothing can thwart that. Yes. Blessed that he's with you in terms of like saying, I, I'm with you. I will never forsake you. Yes. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Yes. Those are all elements of blessing that are without question things he's promised. But we get into trouble when we take things and we twist them and then turn around and blame God for that. But God always fulfills his promise because he is faithful. But again, another thing we, we are looking at is another part of his character, and that would be God's omnipotence. And the definition of that would just be this. God is able to do all his holy will. God exercises complete power over his creation and rules as sovereign. And we talked about this a little bit last week. God, God is not limited in power at all. I mean, I think we need to park our minds there. His power is limitless. There is no limit to it. It is not exhausted. He doesn't need to rest. He's not like the, you know, the battery. If, your car, if you drive a hybrid car, you know, you're like, you're looking at that battery. You're like, oh, it's going down. It's going down. Come on, baby. You got to go back up. None of that. There's no like, oh, you know, whoop. God's power. No, it's just constantly infinite. There's no limit. There's no upper limit. It's just he keeps going. So the universe that he spoke into existence, he did that without any effort. And there was never a moment of diminishment of his power in that. The fact that he holds everything together now in the same way. Jeremiah, the prophet, describes it this way. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. So God actively accomplishes his promises by this limitless power. So when we think of, again, the fact that God keeps his promises, it's never because he's not able to do that. And, and again, people to deal with and wrestle with different issues, and sometimes to, for them to kind of equate things together in their minds and make things work out, they have to make God unable to do some things. Well, God would wipe out evil, but he just can't. That's kind of the perspective some, some have, have held to or come to eventually. And that's just, that's not what the Bible describes as God. Um, the, the, real, the reality is, with, even with evil, with the problem of evil, and it's a, it's a good discussion to have. Maybe you're here today and you're asking that question, like, well, how does evil work and where did that come from? You know what? The Bible tells us where evil came from. And the Bible tells us what's going to happen to evil, too. And God himself is the one who came to defeat evil. He hasn't completely removed it yet. But let's be very careful. Let's not take that reality and then run to a conclusion that goes, oh, that must mean he can't. No. No, he has a purpose right now in this time. We, we call it the, the already not yet. We're kind of in this in-between moment. But God's all-powerful. He's going to bring his promises to pass. And if anything, that's part of the element of a promise, isn't it? It hasn't come yet. <laughs> 
We're waiting. We're anticipating it. Another attribute of God that's important it would be the goodness of God. Now, by the way, if God's omnipotent and not good, whew, we are in big trouble. That'd be terrifying. But thankfully, God is good. And, and a simple definition of the goodness of God, God is the source and standard of all good. The only reason you and I actually even have any notion at all of what good might be is because God is in fact good. We wouldn't even have that frame of reference for anything were he not good. There'd be no such thing. And when some people say, well, then when, when God said this or when this was done, that was wrong. It's like, time out. Impossible. God, by definition, is good. When he does it, he is setting the bar for what good means. He isn't measured by our standard of goodness. No, we are measured by his. We don't even have a standard of goodness apart from him. I love how, how Psalm 34 just says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So the psalmist is saying, God is good. So come and taste. The problem that you don't, the problem you have with God's goodness is not the, whether or not he's good. It's that you've never tasted it. You know? Uh, some, uh, there's a dish in our house that we really like. But I want to tell you right now, I wouldn't recommend you get a recipe and just try it because my wife, Janet, has the recipe. So if you're going to get it, get it from her. We call it chicken divan. Uh-huh. It is good. All right? It is like the happy place. Like if our house is like cold, it's cold outside, and you walk in the door and you're like, oh, Janet's been cooking. You know, that's, by the way, the reason I got to go to the gym more is because Janet's a good cook. Okay? I'm sorry. But she is. But could you imagine her putting that out on the table and we're all sitting down and then all of a sudden I just kind of go, I'm not going to eat that because it's not good. You'd be like, well, great, more for us. You're an idiot, you know? <laughs> Everybody else would eat it. But the, but the thing is, um, you've got to taste it to know. So if you're here today and you're struggling with and you're wrestling with all these different issues and you're wondering about God, about the claims of Christ, I just want to call you, encourage you. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Because he is. Turn to him today. He, he says to you, if you're weary, if you're tired, if you feel burdened, he's saying, come to me and I'm going to give you rest. If you're feeling overwhelmed by the guilt of your sin, maybe, maybe you're sensing a lot of conviction. He's saying, not only do I welcome you, I cleanse you, I will wash you. If you will just receive from me the gift of salvation that comes from my sacrifice on the cross in your place. You could do that today. You, you, you could turn to him right now. Maybe you're with us online right now and you're just, you're just beginning to think about these things. Maybe you even came across by... by what you would think as being an accident to even be watching this today. This is the day you can turn to him. And you can know what it means to be made white as snow because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. So taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So now, now we come to this this thing of, okay, if God, in fact, is trustworthy, then if we can know that he's going to bring about his promises, then the question would be, what are his promises? And now I'm just going to give you a full-on disclaimer for the rest of this time that we're going to have together. I cannot cover all of them. We are going to scratch the scratch of the scratch of the surface of the promises of God today. But I just want to bring up some that are really important to us, especially this time of year, as we look at the incarnations, we look at Jesus and the birth of Jesus. So what, what has God promised? Well, the first would be this. He has promised the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I mean, right there, that's the... Really? He didn't have to do that. No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, at the outset of when we fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3, in the middle of bringing the consequences for sin... And as he speaks to 
Adam and to Eve and then even the serpent, the devil who tempted them. In the middle of that declaration, what does God say in Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He's talking to the serpent. He's saying there's going to be a conflict here. Notice, you shall, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Right there in the beginning, there's the promise of this one who would come to save. Jesus is not an afterthought. This is not God going, oh yeah, I should have thought of that. Hey, I've got an idea. No. Jesus is the Savior. From eternity past, even in this moment now, when the consequence for sin is declared, so is the promise. And that promise would be reiterated centuries later. Isaiah 7, about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet declares, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and will call his name Emmanuel. When you translate that term, what does it mean? God with us. Already, this promised one's going to come in a different way. There's going to be a, a virgin that has a baby. And yet, this baby is going to be God with us. And so we see that all these different promises are given around this, this Messiah, this Savior who's going to come. And there's so many different references. Over 300 references to Christ's coming are in the Old Testament. His family lineage. Again, what we just mentioned, he's going to be born of a virgin. The, the, the social climate he's going to enter into. The response of his own people. The fact that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be betrayed by a friend. He's going to be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. The fact that those silver pieces are going to be cast onto the floor of the temple. The exact amount of money he's going to be betrayed for. All of this is written in the Old Testament. The manner in which he's going to be killed. Again, described with detail in the Old Testament, centuries before that manner, manner of execution was even invented. I mean, e even down to the very place he's going to be born. 800 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah wrote this. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You're listening to that prophecy, you're going, okay, okay, there's going to be someone coming, all right, okay. Uh, he's going to be a ruler in Israel, all right, great. His goings forth are from the days of eternity. What is that? This is obviously not a normal person. There's something else going on. And, and then Bethlehem? I mean, really, when you're hearing that, that prophecy, you're kind of going, come on, not Bethlehem. I mean, any place but Bethlehem. Um, at that time, the population would have been far less than 1,000 people. It'd be, like, it'd be like today, someone saying this. The king is going to be born. And he's going to be born in Lotse, Oklahoma. Exactly. Right. Yeah. By the way, what is Lotsey? I looked it up. It is the smallest town in the whole United States of America. Yep, the population at the 2020 census, six people. And by the way, they grew a lot because in the 2010 census, there were only two people in the whole city, town, place, whatever. Yeah. But that's what this is like. Bethlehem? Really? Yeah. Why? Because God's style is not our style. Don't you love that? God loves using the, the, the out of the way, the, the obscure. You know, not the prominent, not the great, not the mighty. He loves using little places, little things. And by the way, that's a comfort for us, isn't it? Because he wants to use me and you, too, to do amazing things. But you look at, those are just some of the promises described. Again, over 300, and you could say it's... It's coincidental. You know, others will try to say this. They'll say, well, what happened was Jesus kind of, you know, through human cleverness and the people around him and, and manipulation and sleight of hand, he fulfilled all those, pro all those prophecies. And, and you, you think, oh, that sounds kind of plausible until you, I don't know, just consider it a little longer than a moment. So let's just consider it longer than a moment, okay? So 
Uh, the baby's got to be born in Bethlehem. So the baby's in the womb going, come on, mom, we're going to be late. Get to Bethlehem. Like, that doesn't work. Uh, the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes as he's hanging on the cross. Again, that's specifically described in the Old Testament. Jesus is working that out? I mean, really? Now, clearly, this is God's wisdom and faithfulness orchestrating the fulfillment of his beautiful promises. And that's why Galatians 4 can say this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. So God, God sent his son at just the right moment in human history. When, when, when God's oversight over world events would bring about the most beautiful place to bring about this gospel, this good news. And, and there's all kinds of things that played into that. Certainly, you know, the, the roads that were uh, kind of run by, by Rome at that time, right? Pax Romana, peace allowed through merchants and trade for the gospel to spread all over the known world. And there were many other things, but God, God used that. Um, and so God did this, again, he born of a woman, born under the law. Born, born of a woman in that he's human. He is the God-man. And we talked about that a little bit last week as well. So he is 100% man, 100% God. He's human. He, he can take our place. He can live and fulfill God's law in the way that we couldn't. And then he can die in our place as well as our substitute. In the same way, the Passover lamb, another depiction of Jesus in the Old Testament, was killed in the place of those who deserved God's wrath. And so born, born under, of a woman and born under law, again, to fulfill God's law, to, to bring about salvation for sinners like you and me who cannot keep God's law, who need a savior. You know, the, the interesting thing is when we look at that and we look at God's promise here and we look at his you know, fulfillment of that promise, we understand that, you know, this is really what we were made for. You, you notice how the whole world is kind of chasing after happiness? You ever see those things now? They got, they got little rankings now. Happiest country on earth. Right? You notice how the U.S. is always like never in the top 10, by the way, on that one? You're seeing that like, really? No wonder, right? No, no, it's not Why? And what is typically on there? It's like Sweden, right? It's one of these European countries. And I saw an article recently like, you know, you know why? You know why those people are so happy? Saunas. <laughs> everywhere. There are saunas everywhere in that country. You want to be happy, get in a sauna. That's what they're saying, right? It's sort of like, I don't think that's it. I, I, th I think, but we do. We want to have a reason, right? We want to have a, a thing. Like, well, yeah, it's got to be this. That's what makes you happy. Do you understand that you have been made by God? to know him. That's why you were made. I love the Westminster Catechism. You know, a catechism is a series of questions that's used, and when you give the answer to the question, you're helping that person learn or grow in the faith. And, and essentially, the Westminster Catechism, the very first question is, why were you made? And the response is, you know, I was made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the answer. And then I do love how, you know, centuries later, John Piper would come along and he would kind of tweak that a little bit. He'd take the and and he'd make it a by. In other words, what were you made for? I was made to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's why you were made. Jesus said it well when he described life, right? He, he said in John 17, he said, this is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Personal knowledge, again, not, not, not a intellectual only knowledge, but to know God in a relational way. And that happens through Jesus. So if you're here today and you're looking for happiness and you're looking at the surveys, well, it's got to be this. I guess I got to buy a sauna or at least get a membership to some place that has one or whatever it would be. Do you realize whenever you get to that place, have you noticed it in your life? You get, I'm really going to be happy when you fill in the blank and then you get there and you're like, huh, I'm still not. It's fleeting. It's because you have been made to know God personally. And the way to do that is through Jesus. 
because your sin keeps you apart from him. But when you do come to know him in that way, you realize there's forgiveness of sin, there's reconciliation, there's cleansing. The burden that you've been carrying, maybe it's your own righteousness. You know, you're, maybe you've been religious. That's not going to save you either. Religion can't make you happy. And Jesus says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that term blessed means happy. Not the kind of flat plastic happy that the culture throws around, but no, a deep abiding blessedness in God. And so this promise of God, when we really lay hold of it, when we really grab it, the profound, beautiful, excellent promise that this unique one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, is the Savior, the Messiah, then we're anchored and we're actually alive for the first time. But another promise that God gives, it's not, um, and it can stem, but these other promises we'll talk about, they all stem from this first one. Because of the Savior, because of this most excellent promise, we also do receive forgiveness of sin. Actual forgiveness of sin. As in like the things that you've done to dishonor God in thought, word, deed. The things that you have not done that you were supposed to do. The elements of your life where your conscience is saying to you, how could you do that? Maybe you're here and you are a believer and you've been walking with Jesus for a while. And yet still there are these seasons, times where you're going, how could you do that? You know, we, we, the Bible talks about the sin that still easily can entangle believers. Uh, when, you, when you become a believer, it's not like sin just goes, oh, it's all gone. I never struggle with sin anymore. <laughs> no, you're actually going to learn more about what sin is. But what happens is when we really grasp this, the forgiveness of sin and the cleansing that comes from Jesus, now we have hope in the midst of our struggle with indwelling sin. And God tells us we're going to struggle with indwelling sin. First John tells us this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then we're also given a prescription. He says, but if we confess our sins or agree with God, agree with God that what I've done is wrong. If we confess our sins... He is faithful. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The prophet Jeremiah talked about this too. He talked about how I'm going to cleanse them from their iniquity in, in chapter 33. I'm going to cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they've sinned against me and I will pardon their iniquities which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy and praise and glory. All the nations of the earth will hear of all the good that I do for them. That's an Old Testament prophet. That's Jeremiah the prophet. He was not, he, just trust me, Jeremiah was not the guy that's just going to try to be polite and say nice things. No way. Uh-uh. That bold prophet is declaring this. That I will cleanse them of all their iniquity. You know, the Apostle Paul would write about this in, in Romans chapter 4. He's contrasting two ways to approach God. You can be religious and morally upright. That's one option, which, by the way, no one is, so everyone fails. Or you can trust in Jesus by faith. And Paul contrasts those in this verse, and he says, Now to the one who works, again, salvation by religious works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but it's what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, Paul here is going back to Abraham, because a lot of the people he was writing to, they were saying, well, we're children of Abraham. And Paul's going, okay, you want to be a child of Abraham? Then get this. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he's talking to a group of people there who are saying, no, no, no. Really, the way to be reconciled to God, the way to be declared righteous, is to be good. 
It's to keep the law. And we're so good at that. And so there is a self-righteous kind of mindset that Paul's addressing there. And he's saying there is no place for self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is just as damning a sin as adultery or any other ones you want to list out. It just looks nicer. It's just as dangerous and it's just as damning. And so Paul here is, is saying... No, God is the one, and he's using these shocking phrases. This is a big one. Notice, God justifies the ungodly. Whoa. That word can be translated the wicked. God justifies, God declares righteous the wicked. He puts those two words and sandwiches them together in the phrase on purpose. It's meant to be like a cold splash of water, like, yep, this is what I'm saying. Just as Abraham did not earn his righteous standing before God because of some ritualistic activity or religious activity or some act like circumcision, his whole point here is that Abraham believed God and was reckoned righteous before circumcision even came about. And he's also saying here then that acceptance from God is apart from any merit that you might earn. And so he brings about this, this reality that, no, you're saved by grace through faith. And he'll write that in Ephesians chapter 2. But here's the thing. Do we really hold on to that as God's promise? Do we really hold on to that? In your weekly wrestlings with guilt, with sin, in the times that you go before God in confession, if you're, again, a believer here today, does this promise impact you the way it must? Sometimes we might even go, well, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus really came to forgive sin. You know, maybe he came to be an example or, or he came to do other things. And, you know, if you were with us several weeks ago in Luke chapter 5, do you remember what Jesus did when they lowered the man down from the ceiling? The man was, was, was paralyzed. He couldn't walk. And, and, and his friends were trying to get him in front of Jesus so that Jesus could heal him. And so they went through all this effort to pull off, you know, tiles from the top of the roof. And then they lowered their friend down in front of the crowd. And the first thing Jesus does is, says, your sins are forgiven you. And of course, everybody there is going, why? why? The guy needs to be healed. But Jesus was addressing the real need. And he was also about to teach everyone there a very important lesson. Because the religious leaders there, by the way, the self-righteous religious leaders were there. And they're like, no one can forgive sin but God alone. And Jesus knows exactly what they're reasoning in their hearts. And he says to them clearly, just so you know that I, the Son of Man, quoting Daniel chapter 7, this, this divine one who is coming to rule and to make all things that are wrong right, the Messiah... I, he's saying, the son of man, just so you know, I have authority to forgive sin. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. But so you know that I have the authority, he turns to the guy and says, get up and walk. Boom, the guy gets up. What's Jesus doing there? He's showing that he has the authority to forgive sin. And what does that mean for us in terms of hoping in God's promises? That means as you and I wrestle week in, week out with indwelling sin, as there are times when we fail, we come to God and we confess our sins to him. You got to know something. Jesus came to forgive sin and Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sin. And we need to rest in his finished work on the cross and receive that forgiveness, that cleansing. For the sake of time, we're going to move more quickly here. What's another good promise that stems from this Messiah that God has given, the Savior? Not only forgiveness of sins, but also he gives us a new heart. That's also described really, really beautifully in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, when he says... I'm going to take you from the nations and gather you from the lands and bring you to your own land. And I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you're going to be clean. And I'm going to cleanse you from all your filth, from all your idols. Again, idolatry brings filth. 
But then he goes, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's going to give you a new heart. If you've come to Jesus, do you realize you have a new heart? I don't know. I, I, what a beautiful promise that is. Jesus is making things new, and that includes you. Now we're told in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you're in Jesus, you've been made new and you are being made new. You haven't arrived. He's in that process of making you new, but he's also given you a new heart. And that is such beautiful news. It's this amazing exchange that happened. Jesus died on the cross. Our sin was put on him. His righteousness is put upon us. Our, our uh, old way is gone. We've been given a new nature, a new heart. And, and that means that we are in union with Christ. We are vitally connected with him. God, God has brought this about. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. That's the picture. You're actually in him. You're alive in him. And, and that's something that's, that's amazing to see, this new heart, this new life. Um, our, our, our Christmas tree this year. So uh, sometimes we will take a long time to pick out this thing. We'll actually go to place to place and find the right tree. Find the right tree. You got to find the right tree, you know? And so... We'll go from lot to lot. This year, man, we were just, because Janet happened to be at Costco at the time the trees were being unloaded from the truck, and she's like, they've got trees at Costco. I'm like, buy that thing now. Run over people, tackle who you have to, but get that tree. No, I'm kidding. We didn't do that. But. So I, I, I'm like, I'll be there in five with the pilots, our bigger car. I drove up. We, lo we didn't even see this thing. You know, we didn't know. We had no idea. And uh, it was risky, people. It was risky. But guess what? We cut it open, boom. Thank the Lord, it was just right. But here's the thing. The, the bottom, the bottom needed some work, all right? Bottom needed some work. So I'm under there, and I'm like trimming stuff off. You know how you do that? And then what happens eventually is those little branches, they're just, they're laying around. I, it, it's, I know I should know this, but it still doesn't cease to amaze me. I cut those off. They're sitting there just for a little bit of time. They're dry. Like they become dry fast. Why? They're not connected anymore. Now, of course, the whole thing's going to die. I get that. That's not the point. The point is, um, branches that are disconnected dry out and die. It's, it's a common thing. Jesus used that picture for us so that we would see, look, apart from him, that's what we are. We're brittle. We're dead. But here's what happens. When you're in Jesus, notice this. You are in Jesus. You've been connected to him. It's a vibrant, living connection that you have. That's the new life. That's the new heart. That's what you've been given. And so as a result of that, we need to recognize that we have this amazing promise from God. If you've come to Jesus, you are a new creature. You're not who you were. You're not who you were. I've had the joy of talking to different people here in our church family. And, and we're describing our lives at different times. Sometimes when baptisms come up, for example, people will tell their story. I've, I've talked to other people, and, and you know, we, we have folks as a part of our church family. There, there's someone here who literally came to Jesus in solitary confinement in a military jail. And I remember having that conversation with him, and I looked at him, and I'm just like, because he described how he got there. I'm like, wow. And I go, bro, I could never imagine you being that way. And he looked at me, I'll never forget this, he looked at me and he smiled and he goes, it's not me anymore. And that's the beauty of the new life, the new birth, and the new heart. And that's a beautiful promise to hold on to. And if you're in Jesus today, you have that. And, and, and that comes about as something that's related to another promise of, of, of God. And that is the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, this new life, guess how that happened? The Spirit of God came inside of you. He entered into you. 
and brought you to life. That's what it means to be a believer. The God, the, the Holy Spirit, the third person of, of the Trinity, he enters into you and lives inside of you. And I think it's interesting because a lot of times, you know, you, you kind of get these different ideas of being in the spirit, you know, this time of year, have you noticed that? Are you in the Christmas spirit? You know, and you're kind of like, what does that mean to you? And I think for some people it just means, well, your attitudes and feelings toward Christmas. That's what the Christmas spirit is. And then the next implications, and you're supposed to be up for it. Yay, right? If you've had a hard week, you're like, no, I'm not. For some people, it's, you know, well, the spirit, spirit of Christmas, being in the spirit means, you know, you're helping people that are less fortunate than you are. Or, or there's hope, and there's good cheer, and there's love, and understanding, and goodwill. And it's all this kind of like sappy stuff. Uh, there's actually a recent study that was done. And the, 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 the headline of the article read like this, scientists locate Christmas spirit in the brain. <laughs> I guess they found it. So a new study uses MRI scans to study why, neurologically speaking, some people are into the holiday spirit, while others seem to lack it entirely. And apparently the premotor cortex of people who are happy about Christmas is more active. So there you go. And then, so they're trying to explain this way. Oh, you're not, back to, you want to be happy, get a sauna. Oh, you don't like Christmas? It's your pre-mortal cortex. That's the problem. Um, so, by the way, they also say that the cortex is more active when you are mirroring the body movements of other people. So I don't know what that means. You're in that aerobics class. You're, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know. But look, that's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about being in the spirit. Right? That's not it. Uh, no, instead, when we talk about being in the Spirit, we're talking about this, this dynamic relationship that we have with God because His Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. It's a, it's, it's a way in which um, God empowers us and, and works through us. And so again, the Ezekiel passage, I'm going to put my Spirit within you. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, uh, when the Spirit came in the, at the birth of the church and, and, and people were speaking in languages they had never learned before. They were speaking in tongues. And, 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 and Peter declares, it's, it's what we've received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's poured out the Spirit upon us, and that's what you're seeing and hearing right now. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 describes it as, having believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit, and notice this descriptor, this Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, the Spirit is the one who was promised. And God fulfilled that. And, and you think about that. What does the Spirit of God do constantly? He's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? So, so again, for those who have not yet come to Christ, the Spirit of God is, is active in bringing conviction, in showing need for a Savior. For, for everyone who's come to Christ, the Spirit blesses in bringing about the new birth and regenerating, indwelling, baptizing, sealing, anointing, empowering, guiding, teaching, sanctifying, filling. Uh, he, he sovereignly gives spiritual gifts to His people. To, and then He prompts and enables us to use those gifts to, to build up the body and to care for one another. He comforts us through suffering. He opens our eyes to understand the scriptures that he wrote and to apply them to each situation. He imparts this, this new view of daily life framed by the certain return of Jesus. So he helps us to see now in light of the end. And he does all of this every day. And that's what it means to be in the spirit. And the beautiful thing is... Um, He's at work in those ways in the lives of believers, whether we're aware of it or not. But how much do we miss out on by not being aware of it? The Spirit of Jesus who raised, uh, who raised him from the dead is also the one who gives power to us to live in a new way, to walk in a new way. And so in light of that, we have much to give thanks for and we have much to rest in in terms of God's promise. And so if you've come to Christ, know this. God is dwelling in you. And so what are you called to do? You're called to live out of this resurrection power from the age to come, from the Spirit right now. To depend upon Him in that. You're called to, 
to, to trust him in that. And then many other blessings also flow from God's promises. Um, and there are so many others uh, that we don't have time to even look at today. One would be his wisdom. Do you realize God gives you wisdom when you seek it? Now, you've got to seek it, by the way. You've got to ask him for it. So how he's designed it. But the very way he made the universe is by his wisdom. And if you walk in harmony with his wisdom, you're going to be given the ability to, to navigate through crazy times. And he's, he's, he's promised you that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. Isn't that beautiful? That descriptor there, God gives generously. It's, it's the idea that God isn't just sitting there going, oh, you want wisdom again? Okay, I guess. No, he's ready. He wants to give you wisdom. He's eager towards that. He wants to help your life in that way because you want to walk with him and he wants you to be able to walk in accordance with his truth. Even the trials that we have, we're told, are given to us for the purpose of helping us to seek God and his wisdom. God promises all kinds of things. He promises grace through suffering. He promises his, his inheritance that's reserved for you, that the world cannot overrun, that cannot decay, that cannot be taken away. And so in conclusion, will you, brothers and sisters, rest in the promises of God this season? And if so, how's that going to affect your life? Again, when we rest in God's promises, we see him more clearly. We walk together in love. And we are a witness to those around us who desperately need his hope and his grace. So may we be able to do that as this season continues to unfold. Let's pray. Lord, we, we seek you in this time and we pray that your promises would be precious to us because they're true. We thank you that you always keep your word, that your power and your grace and your joy are available to all in the fact that Jesus has come and he has died and he has risen again. And this promise that we celebrate that's been fulfilled in the birth of the God-man the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. We thank you for him. And we pray, Lord, that these promises and, and the others that are given to us in your word would be the anchor uh, for our, our hearts in days like today. We give you great praise in Jesus, the living one. Amen.